In motorsport, just like in many other aspects of life, timing is everything. G'day everyone, Lockie Mansell here. Welcome to Checkered Flag Chat. And on this episode, our guest is Lucy Hatton. Lucy is an experienced motorsport timekeeper who has officiated at some of Australia's highest level motorsport events. She describes her journey from car enthusiast to motorsport official and we discuss the evolution of timekeeping technology. Please be warned that some aspects of this podcast do reach three pens in the pocket levels of nerdiness. So it's time, pun totally intended, to welcome Lucy in the sky in timing to Checkered Flag Chat. Great to have you on the podcast, Lucy, and I want to have a chat to you about, obviously, your role in timing, because you have become quite affectionately known in the motorsport paddock as Lucy in the Sky in Timing, cue the Beatles soundtrack in the background, and also just more broadly, your role as an official and where it started and what motivated you to get into it. Now, I know that you obviously grew up in a family up on the mid-north coast of New South Wales that was very heavily involved in cars. And I suppose when you've got a few family members who are working at a Ford dealership, you're always destined to become a Ford fan. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Lucky. I don't. I think my grandparents on my mum's side actually had a few Holdens, but my dad definitely, I think I was brought home from hospital in a Cortina and I remember that Cortina quite fondly. Uh, and we had a lot of Fords. We went from Ford Falcon to Ford Falcon to Ford Falcon, pretty much. What models? Do you remember? Oh, I don't remember. I'm one of those people in motorsport, Lockie, that still kind of say the blue one and the red one. <laughs> and I know it's a terrible, terrible stereotype for women. I am getting better now. I can tell the difference between a Porsche and a MX-5 and things like that. But I have to say I was pretty bad when I first started in motorsport. <laughs> well, obviously now that you're in timing, you've got a timing screen in front of you with car numbers that you can use to differentiate between different types of cars. But um, just taking you back to your childhood on the mid-north coast, do you have any memories of your early years where you were hanging around family members while they were working on cars? Probably the best memory is with my brother. My brother, Jeff, is nine years older than me. And one of, I think it was his first car, was a beautiful burnt orange Ford Escort Mark II RS2000. Uh, that car was just such a cool car. I was probably only nine or ten at the time. And I remember him spending a lot of time on weekends uh, taking wheels off, doing minor modifications, checking it all out, cleaning it and then cleaning it again, polishing it, um, letting me sit in it. And of course, he'd want to go off with his mates, but I would get him to take me for a drive and we'd go off on a gravel road somewhere. We we kind of grew up going and looking at any rallies that were happening local to us. And with my brother having his peas and me being younger, I remember a couple of times I was allowed to go off with him to watch a rally. It was definitely probably what got me first into following motorsport and looking at cars. That area as well. So 
Bordale and Taree up to Port Macquarie. Lots of beautiful country roads, and I can just imagine, you know, roads with twists and turns that would have been ideal rally country. So from a, a spectator's point of view, do you have any memories of some of those early rallies that you went to, and was that what sort of captivated your attention and your interest in cars? Yeah, I think so, definitely, lucky. I remember going with my brother to watch a rally and he was trying to look for a good vantage point and I couldn't see any cars and I'm thinking we're just standing in the bush, what's happening? And then you hear that rumble of it coming around and you can just sort of see a corner, you know, you're sort of somewhere back safely behind the trees. Of course, he was there with his little sister, so he couldn't put me in somewhere difficult because how do you explain that to mum and dad when you get back home and um, your little sister's covered in dust or <laughs> whatever? <laughs> I think he was conscious of that, but I I just remember that sound of that rumble of a car coming up and the gravel flying and suddenly you only see the car for a couple of seconds but it's just so exhilarating to just see that car flying and maybe doing a little jump and then going and it's like yeah when's the next one coming and and that really is uh, an early memory that sticks with me definitely i i kind of really it's funny because i've never worked as an official in the rally space my family tell me that as a youngster, I would always ask dad to put the car in R for rally. We often had manuals that, <laughs> to me, R wasn't reverse, it was for rally. And my dad uh, was, I was fortunate that my dad would play along and we'd go out to visit my grandparents. And when we'd get on the gravel, I'd be like, put it in R for rally, dad. And he'd pretend to put it in rally and pretend to rally around and of course he wouldn't be but <laughs> to me I was in the back making car noises and um, I still make car noises up in timing lucky <laughs> <laughs> I should come up to timing more often <laughs> yeah particularly in the afternoon when I'm tired <laughs> <laughs> so that was rallying but circuit racing at that point in your life did you have any involvement or interest in circuit racing or when did that first develop for you as a family we probably always watched bits and pieces um particularly bathurst bathurst was a bit of a sacred day in our household um we never talked about as much going to a circuit and watching not until probably i was older but definitely Bathurst, I remember the first year my brother started working a part-time job and he had to work on Bathurst Day. And so my job was to put, change the, vis, um, the, the tape so that when one tape finished, and he asked me specifically if I could wait till an ad break so he didn't miss anything. And I, had to t and I had to kind of look at the time and take one tape out and put the next tape in so he didn't miss anything. So that's definitely a memory. Um, and then, of course, I'd, I was sitting there watching while he was at work. And then when he came home and watched it again, I watched it again with him. Uh, I remember, too, having a big poster of uh, Dick Johnson's green machine on my wall. The Green's a, Tough Falcon, the, yes, the XD that's right. that's ended right. up in the trees at Bathurst one year. Yes, I had a big poster of that on my wall that I think came out of a car magazine. 
And funny enough, when I met Daryl, he's got that poster framed. So <laughs> it was pretty funny. So let's talk about your background as a, a motorsport official. So obviously you've grown up in a family that's very interested in cars and interested in, in rallying and has a casual interest in circuit racing as well. But it wasn't until a bit later in life that you started to become involved as an official. Now, officials are some of the most underappreciated and unsung heroes that we have in Australian motorsport, and that was one of the reasons that I was particularly keen to get you on the podcast, because I really do think that we do need to make more of an effort to acknowledge a lot of our volunteer officials and also encourage more people to get involved as volunteer officials as well. So for you, what was it that sparked your interest and made you decide to start volunteering? So, look, it was more looking for a hobby to do on weekends. I had been uh, – I'd been through a divorce. I'd moved back from Perth to the eastern side to be closer to family again. I was, you know, I guess mid-30s, so this is back 2010, and looking for something I could do on weekends. I started going to some events as a spectator, but, of course, that just – cost money because <laughs> you have to buy your ticket you have to get there you have to pay for accommodation all that which you know we do as volunteers as well um but i i just basically was looking for what can i do a lot of my friends i had i was living in newcastle at the time uh in new south wales and a lot of my friends had small families young families and I kind of found my weekends going, well, what do I do with that time? And it was actually my uncle Brian. So my dad was a triplet and all three brothers uh, were always into cars. And my uncle Brian had volunteered at Indy up at the Gold Coast for quite a few years. I'm not quite sure how many years he did that for. And he was the one that told me about being an official. I always thought all those people were part of the whole crew and were paid and you know you didn't really know much about the background as you say and he actually showed me his cams official logbook and explained to me what happens and how you know you apply for an event and you go and you there's a morning briefing and you're allocated out to a spot and everyone works together in little teams and he told me all about it and he said well maybe just look at a car club or something you can do to help out and start small. And so basically that's how I started. My uncle Brian um, suggested I look at the official side. What were some of the first events that you officiated at? And are there any standout memories from those events for you? Well, the first event I ever did, Lockie, was Bulladilla Hill Climb. So I looked at the CAMS website and rang the local or Sydney office, as I was in Newcastle. And they said, oh, there's a hill climb. The Mile Lakes Car Club are doing a hill climb at Bulladilla. I had a friend from school that used to post photos of doing things like that on his Facebook. And I knew he was involved with that. So I'd seen some photos and it was run on this, um, well, it still is run to this day, on an old stretch of the highway through the hills at Bulladilla. And... I, I love that part of road. 
really fond memories of going up and down that highway from Taree to Sydney with family. And I, so I rang the car club and said, do you need a helper? Can I come and help out? And of course, the small car club trying to run something like that, they said, yeah, sure, come along, see if you like it. You know, they were sort of, I guess, a bit sceptical going, who are you and why are you involved and how are you getting in this? Because it, it did sort of seem like here's this mid-30s woman just going, I've decided I want to do car club stuff. <laughs> I don't have a car. I think at the time I was driving a RAV4. <laughs> um, you know, I, I sort of was kind of just, yeah, I want to come and see what it's all about. So I got there and they were so welcoming. I had a background in compliance and risk management with what I was doing with work. And so I helped out with the secretary with the document check as I got there. I That's when I first met Doreen Butcher, actually. Um, I think she was there as a steward. And I, you know, kind of saw a little bit of what the scrutineers did. Uh, during the day, I pretty much helped out with every role. They said, we'll have a look at everything we do and see what it's all about. So it was really great event, I guess, to have that small event to start out. And I was able to, you know, work with the, someone to stage the cars up for their run, then, you know, work with the starter. I remember the first time he let me do it. And I, um, you know, put the bit behind the wheel, counted down one, two, three for them and went go. It was pretty cool to like start someone's hill climb and go, they're, they're out there trying to get their personal best on this run. Um, so to be up that close to the cars and see the look on their face was pretty awesome. So I wasn't at that moment where you were staging the cars and um, giving them the three, two, one go and being so up close to the action that that was what made you decide that, yep, this is what I want to do. I love doing this and I want to do more of it. Oh, definitely. And I think just the people, like the whole you know, that event space of the organisation of making something run and you see the competitors and how much they're getting out of it. And they they were just really appreciative of having the people are taking time out of their own uh, weekend to put this event on for them. So, yeah, it was, it was definitely that, I don't know, that sense of giving back, I guess, um, that you're doing something, you're spending your time to give someone else joy. That, that's one thing that I really love about being a motorsport official. So this is, just to put things in a bit of perspective, this is 2010, and later on that year, you were officiate at your first supercars event, which was up at the Gold Coast. How did you get involved in that event? Well, from just when I think I went onto the CAMS website to then go, well, what other events are around, and are there other car clubs I could look at and talk to and help out I saw it had you know click here to apply to work at Gold Coast and also my uncle because he'd been a fishing so he said oh you're going to come up and do it he was going to work at it and he was sort of thinking well maybe I'm at the age this might be my last year so I applied and it was really great because I've got a photo of my uncle and I at um, morning briefing he was actually a point on the other side of the track but we saw each other every morning at morning briefing and that's basically um how I got into it I just applied just saw the link on 
on the web and push the button and put in my details and I didn't think I'd be accepted and I got the thing back so then I had to find accommodation I was fortunate at the time I had a really good job and I think I stayed in a I don't know some type of luxury four-star accommodation at Broad Beach and had a spa suite so it was pretty cool <laughs> made it a little mini holiday Gold Coast is often referred to as schoolies week for adults, so I can only imagine that you would have had a lot of fun there that weekend, but you've got a taste of what it's like to be an official. You've done the flag marshalling thing for a few events or, or even a couple of years, but then you started to develop an interest in the timing side of things, which is the thing that occupies your time at race meetings today. Where did the interest in timekeeping first get started for you so it was a little bit of well I guess interest in that I am a by nature an administrative organized process driven person lucky and anyone that's worked with me will know that I'm a bit of a stickler of have you read the regulations because it is quite clear in there <laughs> and um, so I guess that always interests me to sort of be involved in that side but physically, it's probably I'm more suited to an indoor job than an outdoor job. I'm fairly fair skinned, freckly person. So to be outside in the sun all day was a bit harsh. I remember getting really bad sunburn, no matter how much sunscreen I put on, I would still get burnt. And also um, standing up all day, I would get sore feet, etc. And as much as it was great to be out there as a flag marshal, I had a couple of times as well where a car got close and I really wondered if I'd ever be able to go back out trackside if I had an incident really close to me. And I think it's, you know, I those people that have done it for years and have had an incident right near them or had a car fly over their head and they go back out there, I have complete respect for those people because I don't know that I could do it. So it was a bit of both that, like, I guess my own mental side and what I find interesting as well as wanting to just be indoors um, got me into timing and it was when I was working uh, as in the secretary's office at a Bathurst 12 hour with um, David and Michelle Kidd that I got to see I guess that side of it of the distribution of results and information coming in from timing and us sharing it out to the teams and Michelle introduced me to Lisa Drayton up there at Bathurst and I sort of talked to her a little bit and said, well, can I come and help sometime? And Lisa said, yeah, sure, at a Sydney event, um, come down and say you want to work in timing and we'll sit you down and give you something to do and see what you think of it. It's a very responsible job, the timekeeper's job, and it's also a role that has evolved considerably with technological advances if you go back to the 1960s and 70s you had to have people manually timing the results with stopwatches and lap charts but of course with the the rise of computing power and systems with timing loops in the circuit and cars with timing transponders it's now become largely automated give us an overview of the responsibilities and roles of a timekeeper in the current era? Well, in the current era, um, well, if I start even when I first started, there'd be probably more people in the timing room. But a lot of it is done through the system. So our role becomes more of a monitoring than actually, I guess, capturing. You're um, 
the loops in the ground and your transponders are actually capturing all the data. So we're basically monitoring to see that that is coming through correctly and it's all looking fine. And then a lot of it now is more to do with the reporting. Um, at national events, we report three levels. We report preliminary as soon as the event's over. We go provisional um, when all the checks have been done. So it could be Park Ferme technical checks, um, information like the different officials and race director looking at incidents during the event will go provisional and then after that go officials. So there's a lot more reporting coming out now, but basically in a timing room, we'll have someone monitoring the actual live capture coming through and that person will be listening. I normally say to my team, the radio is your best friend when you're in that seat. So we like to have that depending on what seat you're sitting in and we'll rotate people around, but you have certain responsibilities in whatever seat you're looking at. So the person that's sitting on the timing computer looking at that capture of data, they're listening to the radio, they're listening for flag calls, they're listening for is there a safety car, um, is there a red flag, when are we starting the event and they'll have the schedule in front of them and looking that you know, are we on time? I'm expecting that we're going to go green flag and release out to the track in two minutes because that's the schedule. Where are we up to in terms of events, etc.? And then we'll have someone who's actually then looking at the information from an edit point of view, seeing if there's anything that needs to change. Was there a car number um, or say a car that didn't have a working transponder or transmitter and we have to put that data in. I normally like to give people like two strikes, the third strike, I start to get grumpy, lucky. And <laughs> you've probably heard me, particularly at, I guess, some smaller events where you know some of the guys, it's kind of like, what are you doing to me? Don't upset Lucy. Put your <laughs> Dorian in properly, please. <laughs> it certainly gets pretty frustrating from a commentator's perspective as well when you're rating a timing screen and it's pretty obvious that a competitor either doesn't have their Dorian transponder installed properly or they might have not put it in at all or it's not working and the car is not being timed correctly. And in some cases that can completely stuff up, you know, which cars are on which laps, particularly if it's an endurance race and you've got pit stops involved and it can actually make it quite difficult to understand and analyse what's happening. So again, the, the accurate feed of live timing information, particularly in the bigger national level events where there's a broadcast, it's very important to make sure that the, the spectators, either spectators at the track who are listening to the on-track commentary or people watching the event on television or on the live stream, if it's a broadcasted race, it is really important that the timing information being fed to the commentators and the broadcast team is as accurate as possible. Are definitely lucky and that's something that we focus on in the timing room for sure and I think that's a change I've seen uh, it used to be even when I started in 2010 we'd, we'd kind of be trying to capture the data and there might be someone scribing down the numbers and someone else kind of going okay who is between 12 and 24 because I know I've got a gap there and the information to be passed over and entered in. Now it's a, we try and do that as quickly as we can. So we try to even on the outlap identify are there any issues with transponders, Dorians, etc. And then um, identify those cars and then we know who we're looking for. So we're all looking for when's car 10 coming past because we know he's 
automatic feed isn't working and we need to enter that manually. So we'll all be there ready to put it in instantaneously. Of course, when you're running sector points, you can't put that data in for all those other points. You can only do the main line. But that's where, as you say, we're trying to fix that as we go around, not just wait and edit it in at the, at the end. With endurance racing as well, if we know we've got someone, we will actually look for when's it coming into the pits and add a record in for that pit entry. So we get that data and can put that um, pit stop time. It has helped a lot now that we actually have a video system that's linked with our timing system. So we have a video recording the mainline crossing and sometimes pit exit as well. And that's linked into Natsoft. Um, David Douglas up in Sydney worked with Craig Wilson, the Natsoft owner, and basically developed a, a program where the video footage is linked into Natsoft. So we could go to any line and go back to that um, image at that point in, of the data and actually see what was happening on that main line at that point. So that's really, um, that's only been around here in Australia for a couple of years, but it really has changed what we do in the timing room that we have that accurate, I guess, proof of what's happened on the main line. I've had a couple of races now where we've gone to that footage and I think I've even shared with you, Lockie, in the media team to say, this is the image of how close that race finish was. And it's going back to the regulations. Sometimes in uh, categories regulations, it will say um, it's, you know, it'll it'll specify who is the race finisher. Is it the one that, the, you know, part of the car gets there first or is it just from the timing data? So put your, put your Dorian up the front if you want to <laughs> win on a close finish. And, and the timing is incredibly precise. So... The, the Natsoft timing system that we're all familiar with that's in use of most motor racing circuits times cars to four decimal places or to the 10,000th of a second. Can you remember any races or qualifying sessions in your time as a timekeeper where it's been an absolute dead heat to the 10,000th of a second? No, I don't think I've ever seen a dead heat. I've definitely, I think it was in a... Um, Australian production cars, it wasn't a race, it was a qualifying session that it was down to, you know, 0 0.002 between the top qualifying times. But because that was a double driver um, qualifying and then the times are actually added together to form the grid, it wasn't that close when you actually went to the grid because the second drivers were further apart but that was pretty exciting and and I guess that is where it gets pretty exciting when you're watching and you'd know Lockie you're waiting for a lap record or you're you're looking for who's going to qualify fastest here um you know they're on that last flying lap and you know who's finished their flying lap and who else is coming and you can see um this is going to be close this is going to be down to the hundreds or thousands of a second here. <laughs> Particularly when it's sort of track where you've got multiple sector times. So a lot of the circuits that we go to now will have generally two sector timing loops at various points in the track as well as the, the timing loop at the start finish line. So Particularly, you think back to the top 10 or top 15 shootouts that we've had at Bathurst over the years, and the Greg Murphy lap of the gods lap in 2003 is one that particularly comes to mind where 
you've got Neil Crompton in commentary going, look at the split, it's awesome, because you could say even at the first sector time that Greg Murphy was on a mega lap. So I think having that timing information again, coming back to the point that I made earlier, it's that information and the flow of that information to the broadcast and the commentary team that helps to create some of those iconic moments in Australian motorsport history that we all know and love. Oh, definitely. And that's where advancement in that in terms of what you guys can see. You, I know you have, Lockie, the NatSoft program where you can actually change the columns of what you're seeing of the data coming through. So that's something that's only been developed in the last, what, five years that anyone can go to the NatSoft website and download the what they call the NatSoft app and you actually have that and you are looking at anyone running live timing at an event, which pretty much is any event state level and up these days, um, even some club sprints, you can actually just look at that data in real time and actually change what you're seeing on the screen. So that's a subscription into that. But I have a setting for endurance racing. So if I'm at home and I'm watching endurance racing on my screen that I've got on my computer at home, I'm looking at um, particularly, say, I guess, Bathurst 12-hour, I want to see what vehicle it is. I don't really care about the driver name because, to me, endurance racing is more about the team effort. And, yeah, it's good to know who's in the car right now, but I want to know, is it a Mercedes out there? Is it a McLaren? Is it Nissan? So I, I generally put um, things like the vehicle type um, or I guess the team name, the vehicle, how many laps since last pit stop, how many laps since last driver change, um, things like that on the screen. And you can show the sector times, you can show it as just the indicators of the green and purple um, to see, you know, how the sector times are going and things like that. So, so that's one of those things, I guess, especially in commentary, you would love it because you have so much more access to the data, like we see it in the timing room. And I know that this has probably turned into quite a techie, nerdy sort of technological <laughs> conversation. But, but I, I agree. Absolutely nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But with all of the data that gets produced by the timing system, there's other people who have then gone away and created third-party software that can take that data feed, interpret it, and then give you other information. So... For example, Oscar Fiorinotto, who's a very, very well-credentialed and well-recognised Australian motorsport engineer who is the strategic analyst for Supercars Television for their broadcasts of events. Back probably 10 or 15 years ago now, he was instrumental in developing the PitSmart strategy software, which gets that timing feed from Natsoft and then interprets that and comes up with a prediction of what the race results are going to be once all of the pit stops are complete and again that information is very useful not just for broadcasters and commentators but also for race teams in those longer races that have pit stops to be able to make a determination about when the best time is to take a pit stop to then come out in a position on the racetrack where they're not going to get held up by traffic yeah, that's right. There's a plenty 
of strategy software out there. And that's one thing I guess I've seen that where it used to only be used at that high level, like it was only being used in supercars and maybe a couple of GT teams. Now you're actually seeing teams coming down to some of the other categories are using that strategy software all the time as well. And even some of the grassroots team is looking at it because they aspire to be, okay, let's use everything we've got and to our advantage. Of course, anything with this, there's the money factor. So you can have all these things, but someone has to pay for it. And and I guess that's the thing I see with timing. There's a lot of things available, but particularly, I guess, at a grassroots event, that's why you don't see sector times as much or you don't see some of the things you'd see at the higher events because supercars will pay to have this technology and they'll invest in that and they definitely invest in kind of moving it forward and trying to be the best in their game. GTs as well uh, have been instrumental in kind of development of some of these things and asking industries like Dorian to can you give us this to this spec and can we look at that and that's how these things evolve and I think we're really good in Australia if you think you know predominantly Natsoft and Dorian are used at a lot of tracks they're Australian companies you know it's it's we're using Australian technology and we're keeping up with the rest of the world by just going how can we build it how can we make it better how can we do it that it suits our needs and one of the great examples of that is the driver ID technology that's used, again, in a lot of the longer distance endurance races where you'll have multiple drivers sharing a car, such as the Bathurst 12-hour. And again, probably just to give everybody a bit of background, typically what has had to happen in endurance races is that you've actually had to have observers in pit lane and we think to some of the grassroots endurance races like the Winton and the Wakefield 300s where drivers put stickers on their helmets A and B and the letter corresponds to which driver's in the car and you'll have an observer standing at pit exit who will see that a car has done a driver change and then they'll radio up to the timing tower to say, yep, driver A has now swapped with driver B, so they're in the car, and that information then gets updated on the timing screen. Um, full credit to the observers who do the work, but obviously it is quite a clunky process having to go through that situation where you have a person radioing the information up to the timing crew up in the control tower but um, one of the things that has been introduced is an automated system where uh, when the when a driver change now takes place i believe that the driver has a computer chip that sits in their helmet or their hands device and the car is actually able to detect when a driver change has taken place and the information automatically gets fed back up to timing give us a bit of an overview of how that system works yeah, you're right, Lucky. So even my first Bathurst 12-hour in the timing team, I was one of those observers. And I guess two of the main issues that we used to have is, one, people might have multiple letters on their helmet because they don't take off their last one. So you might have a guy that's got two A's and two B's and you're like, well, which one are you for this event? The other thing was just more the timing of, well, pardon the pun but you might have four people trying to radio at once because everyone's come in for pit stops 
and so that fourth driver change the car might be halfway up the mountain before you actually get that information to timing and so the screen's not reflective of a driver change um, move from that to basically um, a manual switch so from that technology we moved to where there was a panel in the cars and a, the driver actually pressed a button and said um, you know I'm driver one or two or three or four what that does is it actually is connected to the Dorian and then um, changes the last digit of the Dorian number so basically in the timing um, we can see that it's now you've got a base number for the car and then you can see whether it was driver one two three or four that was used for a couple of years and then we moved to RFID chips um, which was first used in supercars and then in GTs and then we were able to well I say we the royal we I don't think I was more in the development <laughs> just in the usage um, but basically for Bathurst 12 hour it, use of an RFID chip that does go near the helmet plug and um, so that is instantaneous that'll change the Dorian number um, specific for each driver that's in the car. I'm very fortunate that at Bathurst 12 over the last couple of years my role has been to um, distribute all that timing hardware out to the teams so a lot of the Australian based teams already have that technology they use it for GT racing um, all year round and you might just have new drivers need to have a chip and we need to check there isn't duplicate chip numbers within a team so you can't have three drivers all as driver number two etc so going through and checking all that a couple of days before the event starts for the international teams they're given in the regulations what the specifications I have to say what was really impressive this year is a couple of the teams that have been there a couple of years now they came back with all the equipment that they've had because they kept it safe and I'm thinking these people travel all over the world and do endurance racing and here they are in one little section in all their things they bring with them they had their little plastic bag with this is our stuff for the driver ID system in Australia and they had all the equipment they could have kept they had it there and said oh no we don't need these things because we've already got it and at first I was like really Bentley team was like that and they'd also 3d printed holders that fitted the brackets that perfectly fitted all the equipment that we were giving them so it was already fitted into the car and all they had to do was click it in rather than try and fiddle around with installing you know that day before the event started so you know that's really impressive when you kind of go that these teams really embrace it we have a few of the international teams that say it's the best system they use at all the endurance racing that they do around the world so that's always really good to hear that positive feedback of people going this is absolutely fantastic technology and you know that's that's a really great story it really is and again it's an australian development that's now pretty much leading the way in terms of global technology which is absolutely fantastic now as you mentioned here in australia it's predominantly the natsoft software and the dorian hardware that is used for timing but they're not the only systems there's also mylaps which is used at some tracks like morgan park CompuTime is another timing system that comes to mind, and that's one that's used by the Australian Superbike Championship. Uh, and there's a few other different systems that are used around the place as well. 
do you have a preference? Do you say the Natsoft story in combination as being the best that we have in Australia, or do you think that some of the others have got advantages as well? So I think, Lockie, it comes down to, I guess, what's there. It, if you think, so venues have invested in this technology. So as you say, Morgan Park and some of the Queenslands have invested in the MyLap system and they use that. I've used that and it really they all capture, we all use what works. So in terms of they all capture the race data, the data from the cars, they all can produce results, etc. So it's not so much what works better, it's just what has been invested in. So all the circuits that have invested in Dorian hardware and some circuits, so like Tail and Bend, when they set up, they've got both. So they're able to provide that service to their customers and basically say, well, you can use either one or you can bring your own. I predominantly have worked with Timetronics over the years. So Timetronics use Dorian and Natsoft. It's It's been used, I guess, at a lot of the national type area, which is predominantly a lot of what I do these days. So that's what I'm familiar with. And I do see we get involved in the testing. So Natsoft will be coming out with new software in the next year or so that will be you know, these things evolve. I know MyLapse is a lot easier to use now than it used to be. And Natsoft is definitely going that way as well. And and as I said before, I think Dorian have been very responsive to the Australian market and listened to the customer and said, what do you want? We'll build it for you. MyLapse will definitely do that as well. But I guess more at a level of, because it's a global company, you need to have enough of the market to be able to make a change. MyLapse would love to take over the Australian market. And I know that's one of their goals to take over the Australian market. And I've been to MyLapse conferences and I've got a relate, like I talked to MyLapse representatives and I had to quite simply say to them, if it's not broke, why fix it? So the tracks that have invested in Dorian technology and the series like supercars that have invested in Dorian technology, why would they throw something in the bin that works perfectly fine? And I think it's it's kind of as simple as that to not get into the, <laughs> I guess, the politics of it all. But to me, they all work. I, I can go and work and I've worked with, I've seen Scott Lang who owns CompuTime with the bikes. The bikes have to, I guess, look at something different just by the nature of a bike of where you can stick the transponder. But they all work pretty much the same. They all go over a loop. They all capture the data. They all represent it. And at the end of the day, the screen might look different, but it shows you the same stuff. You mentioned there that Natsoft are going to be coming out with some new software. Can you give us any exclusive insights here on the Checkered Flag Chat podcast as to what that new software might entail? Well, the new software, I guess it's probably in terms of it's going to have the ability, I guess, to be a bit more dynamic in, in terms of being a bit more flexible in usage, so being more Windows-based. If anyone's seen the software now, they kind of look at it and go, oh, like computer program, I need to be a nerd to understand this, you know, with that old traditional grey screen and have to look Doth. for the test exactly um so <laughs> running, it will be, yeah so it will be um well it's basically a big database you know you think of it um it's basically a big database structure of you you know 
I, I say to people, and it's, you know, orbits that's used with MyLapse is exactly the same. You start with, you have tracks underneath tracks. You have, you know, you basically create events. You have categories, you have competitors in categories. You then have events that have categories out on track. In those events, you have a number of laps or a number of minutes, and you think of it like a tree. That's how any of the software sets up, is set up. You So the new version of Natsoft, it's gonna be Windows based. It's gonna be a lot easier. So I guess from the user point of view, they can kind of structure a little bit of how the screen looks for them. So they can have the information that's relevant. For me, that makes a difference. So if you're timing a club sprint versus an endurance race, you might wanna see different things on the screen. Like, as I said before, we do that with display screens now that endurance racing, I want to see more about the driver ID, the laps since pit stops and things like that. Whereas a club sprint, that's all irrelevant. It's in testing. It's in testing. Okay, there we go. That's the official word. It's in testing and uh, we can't wait to see that when it gets released. Are there any things for you as a timekeeper that are on your wish list of improvements that you would like to see with either the hardware or the software? Uh, I mean, I have to say anything I've kind of, I keep a little notepad with some ideas. Craig Wilson that owns Natsoft, when he sees me, he's like, oh no, what do you want, Lucy? Because I'll go, you know what, it'd be great when we do this report if we just had this one field and some of it, he'll go, oh yeah, I can add that right now. And then suddenly the change is there. So I think we're pretty good in the timing community that I've got a good relationship with the guys up in New South Wales and at Morgan Park as well. So Oz timing up at Morgan Park, Cassie and Nath, and then all the guys at LD timing. So Lisa and David, um, shout out to all of them, all my timing buddies. Scott and Michael, I feel like Romper Room now. <laughs> You're probably not old enough to know Romper Room, Lockie. No, sorry. <laughs> now I'm that reference is lost on me. Now I'm showing my age. People will get that. So basically, uh, we have a really good timing community where we do call each other and go, hey, this category is asking um, for results like this. Do you know, is there a report that shows that or have you had that before? We're really good at communicating with each other and kind of going, well, I would like this. You'd like that too. Okay, let's go and ask Craig for it. Um, Particularly things with regularity events. So over the years, you know, regularity events and the regularity relays, um, there's been some changes in the software. And then even with the display, when the display screen came out to be able to show not just your nominated lap time, but also what was your last two lap, you know, your last lap time and things like that. So I think it's pretty good that, you know, as we say, that they respond to what we need. And and a part of that is as a timekeeper, what do I need to do my job in the room, but also categories. So categories and regulations, they'll come out with, I remember one year GT for endurance had that points were awarded at lap 30. That's right. Yes, I do remember that. Oh, yep. Yeah, that turned into a bit of a nightmare, I have to say. <laughs> Well, <laughs> well, not so much a nightmare, but, you know, regulations very much come down to the way they're worded and how they're interpreted. So the intent was that everyone gets points on 
wherever they were at their lap 30. But, but as timekeepers, we yeah, said, well, that's flawed because one person could be on lap 30 when the leader's on lap 40. Yeah, so, exactly. Is it when yeah. the leader completes lap 30 exactly. or is it once every car in the field's completed on lap 30? So we kind of showed with different reports and scenarios that, okay, what you want is actually, um, you know, this is all we can really do and this is why anything, any other th- thought is flawed. So a lot of, I guess, pre-event, particularly at the start of the year when regulations are written and come out, it'd be nice. I do have a couple of categories that actually do send through draft regulations and go, what I'm asking for, is that possible? Can we see that instantaneous? So the example of that is um, John Rosicki at uh, with Thundersports. When he was coming up with the draft regulations for this year, he, he gave me a call and said, okay, Lucy, you know, we want to do these things with class reporting and with kind of lap times, et cetera. What can we see when we're in qualifying and what can we do? And can we do this on the fly or do we have to do it later? And when do we see that reflected, et cetera? So that's really good when categories kind of remember that, okay, let's try and use the timing system to our advantage. And as we were saying before, to see this stuff instantaneously. So, and that's one of the things that time penalties now, we see it on the timing screen that someone has got a time penalty and we know that's going to be added to their race time at the end of the event. So one improvement that I would like to see, just as we, uh, we finish yeah, I'll up add this... It. I'll add it to my note. <laughs> add, it, add it to your list just before we finish up this software and computer gate section of this podcast. But <laughs> as you'd be aware... Lucy, I've been doing a fair bit of work in the online sim racing space recently, and one of the great features of the iRacing platform is that all of the results can be downloaded as Excel spreadsheets, as like CSV files, and particularly when you're building a statistics database, and I know that my fellow motor racing stats nerds like Aaron Noon and Shane Rogers will agree with me on this one, with Natsoft, there's often a lot of manual data entry that's required because you can't export the results in a spreadsheet format. So one thing that I would love to see is the capability where you can export or export race results in a spreadsheet format because that would save you many, many hours in having to do manual data entry. So lucky, I just have to say we should have had this conversation earlier because you can do that. So we do send, <laughs> um, we can download anything into a well, CSV format. And but you also, can't do it from Natsoft. You can't yes, log on yes. to natsoft.com.au and Oh, do no, it. you can't do it, but you can ask whoever's timing to send you that data, as long as it's data that can be released. Um, but if, if I want to go back to 2001 Bathurst, for example, though. Well, you know, no. Yeah, I, I know what <laughs> you mean. what I'm saying? I yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and that's something that potentially is going to be available as we move forward, Lockie. So I know that is something. So at the moment, um, especially with, I guess, national events and categories in the last couple of years, we will be sending out to the category manager. They will get every result in like data format that they can use, whether they use that in strategy software or whether they use that, as you say, into Excel, et cetera that automatically gets sent out after every event. Yeah, so I guess this is probably a good thing of going, if there is something that you ever, uh, particularly category managers, et cetera, 
we don't generally give out anything to anybody. So, for instance, there could be an endurance race where we don't give out specific pit stop information to teams because they might have an advantage over another team. So any of any requests that come into timing, I'll check with the, whether it be the clerk of course or the secretary or the race director or whoever's relevant person to ask and go, hey, someone's asked for this information, can they have it? But always ask because it might be available and you just don't know about it. So if you're tuning into this podcast and you're a category manager or you're somebody else who has a suggestion for a new feature that you would like to see in the new NatSoft timing software, (laughs) drop us a line via our social media channels and I will make sure your suggestions get passed on to Lucy. All right, enough of the tech talk. Let's chat more about... I'll have to... Sorry, Lucky. I just have to say, if Craig's listening to this, he'll be like, no, no. <laughs> um, so, so Craig say that it'll be... Craig Wilson Yeah, yes. it'll be in um, version two release, not the first release. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. He's going to kill us after this because we're going to generate a whole lot more work for him. Speaking of Craig Wilson, though, because... One of the things that I do want to talk to you about, all of the technology is absolutely fantastic, but in the roles that you fill as officials, at the end of the day, it really is about the people, isn't it? The people who you get to meet, the people who you get to work alongside in a team effort to accomplish a common goal. And I know that you in particular have some fantastic stories about the people that you have met and worked with in your role as an official. And... In fact, you're fortunate enough to meet your current partner, Daryl McHugh, through your officiating endeavours. Tell us about that story. Yeah, so it's kind of um, when I first started doing motorsport, a lot of friends and family, I think I said to you, it was a few years after I'd been through a divorce. And so, of course, a lot of friends and family were like, oh, you're doing stuff with motorsport. You'll find a new man. And I was sort of like, I'm not going in there to date I'm going to because I like the cars and I like being up close and personal to the cars. So it's quite funny that I moved to Melbourne from Newcastle in 2012. And that's when I started doing timing predominantly because I was introduced to Ian Leach through Lisa. So Ian kind of tries to say that he's the one that did the introduction, so to speak, of Daryl and I, because he invited me to come up to Winton with him to work at a Shannon's Nationals event in June 2012 and that was the first time I went up to Winton for a race meeting. Now I remember I walked into race control to put some drinks in the fridge so I had a couple of um, I think I had a Red Bull to have (laughs) before I headed back home down the Hume to Melbourne on the Sunday and I said to Ian oh is there a fridge around somewhere and he said yeah there's one in race control just excuse yourself and put it in the fridge there and I met Daryl and Simon Mars and Simon McMahon and a couple of others in there at the time and I sort of excused myself and they're like oh hi you know new face we don't know you and and that was our first meeting yeah so I went back up for Festival of Speed and worked with Tiffany Leach and I remember Daryl coming in and saying oh good to see you back here it's um we didn't scare you off you know welcome back and I thought gee this is good this is really nice track to come up and work at. And, you know, half the people drive up from Melbourne the two hours up the Hume to go to that track and the other half come locally from around the area. And it was just a real nice sense of, 
I guess, family. So Daryl and a few others, we all, I added them on Facebook as you do. You go to an event and you come out with five or 10 new Facebook friends. I'm sure you're the same, Lockie. And, you know, you kind of have these meetings. Some people just sit there and you kind of know what's happening in each other's lives. Daryl and I started chatting one night about a TV show that I was watching and he was watching and we basically started chatting on Messenger and the rest is history, I guess. <laughs> we went out, we decided to go out for dinner. We were kind of like, oh, you know, we have similar interests and this and said, let's go out for dinner because we're both just sitting in our own houses, you know, kind of doing the same thing. And yeah, the rest is history, Lockie. That's a lovely story. And apart from Daryl, I, I can imagine there'd be plenty of other interesting and funny stories and memories that have probably come up over the years yeah definitely it and it's weird because i guess being a fan in motorsport initially i i tend not to well not so much be a fan in terms of if i see a driver now they're just a a stakeholder or a colleague they're not i don't go fangirl I do still a little bit with Dick Johnson and I guess that's, you know, going back to his poster on my wall as a kid and I just think he's a legend. But I've got kind of, uh, you know, I've worked quite a lot with Steve Johnson now and so it's funny you'd kind of think of him like a mate and, you know, his dad was just a legend to me. One of the stories that really sticks in my mind has to be with Phil Brock a few years ago though, Lockie. I don't know if I've told you this one before, but at a HQ four hour, Phil was running a team. It was probably back oh, maybe even five years ago or four years ago. And he was running a team and sent one of his team members up during the Saturday race towards the end of that two hours. And they said, oh, Phil sent me up. I, um, I actually think it might've been Steve White. He was like in his crew for that event and said, oh, Phil sent me up. Natsoft is showing us a lap down, but he really doesn't think we're a lap down. So, you know, is it okay? Are you able to look at it? Uh, and, and you know, as a timekeeper, we're happy to look at anything because as much as we said the technology's there and so forth, it doesn't always work. So you can get, you know, something missed. It, it might be as simple as a car slightly runs off and its transponder doesn't go over the loop and then that lap is missed and that's where we have to constantly be monitoring as good as that technology is we have to constantly be monitoring what's happening in the data to the track to make sure we're not missing anything so that being said you know we can get distractions and something might be missed so i'm always happy to look at the data if a team feels like something's wrong at moments like that you kind of take a deep breath and go right going for a deep dive what's happened with this car so basically, I say, come back in five minutes, I'll look through it. Because at that point, you've got one hour, you know, an hour and 40 minutes worth of data for this car going around and around and around. When I looked at it, we hadn't missed a crossing and it was basically looking at it compared to other cars. It had spent more time in the pits during its tyre changes. So if you're not familiar with that event, the car has to do three stops each two hours. The first stop, they take a wheel off, put it back on again. The second stop, they do a driver change. The third stop, they take another wheel off and put it back on again. So each car stops for three three times during the two hours. 
And looking at it, it was quite simple that I went, well, the leader's gone past you while you've been in the pits and that's why you're down the lap. So I gave gave them as much data, some printouts to kind of show that and said, look, by all means, come up if you need it explained again. Moments like that, I have to get it right in my head before I explain it to the mm. end user, of course. So, And that's something I've noticed that people understand the data more, as we were saying, because people look at the data more. So anyway, that happened. You know, they didn't come back. I went, good. They must have all that. That's all clear. Daryl and I were staying in a motel in Wangaratta, went out for dinner, coming back to the motel after dinner. And Phil Brock's there with his crew having a couple of quiet bevies outside of their motel room. And Phil sees Daryl and, of course, knows him from driver's briefings, being the clerk, of course, and says, oh, Daryl, um, yeah, oh, it's showing me a lap down, but there's no way I'm a lap down. That timing lady said that, you know, there's nothing wrong, but there has to be something wrong. And, of course, I, I hadn't met Phil Brock, so he didn't know I'm the timing lady. He just thinks I'm Daryl's partner coming back <laughs> from dinner. And so Daryl said to him, oh, this timing lady? And he goes, oh, is it you? So I think the first part of the conversation was, hang on, is the timing lady like partners with the clerk, of course? Is that allowed? And we said, <laughs> well, it's allowed. If anything, I probably um, am harder on Daryl as a clerk, of course, than I am with anyone else. He doesn't get away with much. And, and so, you know, the conversation, it was just a lighthearted conversation at start, but then Phil kind of went, now, there's no way I'm, at a, um, I'm down a lap. And so the conversation started that I'm really tired and I, I eventually convinced him and he understood that, okay, I am down. So he goes, oh, so whoever's doing my tire changes, they need to just smarten up. I need someone else on that tomorrow. And I said, yeah. So, you know, we, we concluded that. He went on, anyone that knows Phil knows that he's a great storyteller. And Ooh, yeah. he's got a lot of great stories. So you can stand there for hours and listen. And it's really entertaining. And he's a really great guy. That's and why I haven't had him on the podcast yet. Because I know that if I was <laughs> to him on the six podcast, hours. <laughs> six days more like it. Yeah. So... I have to say I was really enjoying meeting him properly and hearing some of those stories and just, you know, really great rapport. And just, I mean, it's really good when you see, you know, someone who's known to be a good driver and they're sitting around at the end of the day having a few drinks and really spending time with the crew. And, you know, that's really great to see as well. So it was it was nice to be there and hanging out. And but I was getting to the point, I'm like, I'm so tired. I know all the events we've got tomorrow, I really need to get to bed. Phil starts and goes, Lucy, I've got a story for you. I need to tell you this story. I just looked at him, Lockie. I was so tired and went, is this a short story or is it as long as one of your tyre changes? <laughs> and at that point, I kind of went, oh, I said that out on my outside voice, not my inside voice. And I had this moment and it was just kind of silent around, like no one, everyone heard what I said and everyone's kind of looking at Phil and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I don't know this guy very well. How's he going to respond to that? He looked me in the eyes, Lucky. He put his hand up and he goes, I'll pay that high five. <laughs> and I went, phew. And um, yeah, and, and that was pretty funny because he's like, oh yeah, that's pretty funny. He goes, oh. No, it's not as long as my tyre change and started telling me the story. And then I was able to go to bed and it was all good. So, and yes, his tyre changes were quicker the next day. So, 
<laughs> I can't remember where he finished, but yeah, it was good. It, it's good when you kind of have that rapport and you, you know, sometimes competitors can get, well, as you know, they get very precious. They put their heart and soul and hours and hours into a car and, and lots of money as well. And, um, you know, they've got an expectation of where they're going to run and something might happen and they're like, there's no way I'm a lap down or, you know, that wasn't right or whatever. And you have to look at the data and, and that's something I've really learned. And I've probably learned more of being able to analyze data at those grassroots events where you're dealing directly with a team to kind of, you don't really do that as much as the bigger events. It all comes through the race director or the, the category manager. And sometimes they answer the question for you. So you don't get as much as that analysis, I guess, at that higher level that you do with grassroots. It's still about being rational and logical, often in the face of people who are in a highly emotional state as racing car drivers often are. But being a motorsport official, working as a team to achieve a common goal, obviously there's some important skills to be gained there in terms of leadership. But one of the other things that we've identified as well is that working as a motorsport official can also have some very important mental health benefits. How have you found that it's helped you? Oh, definitely lucky. So a lot of people, well, some people know that I'm actually, and I don't mind talking about it, bipolar type 2 diagnosed. And I've often uh, suffered from severe depression and anxiety. A lot of people that know me at tracks would never know this because they see me as an upbeat extrovert that's always up for a laugh and smiling and etc and part of that is that motorsport is my happy place like motorsport really has that sense of family and belonging and I love what I do I feel like I'm good at what I do and it gives me a real sense of purpose so motorsport has really given me a focus of doing something I really love surrounded by a great support network and you know we all talk about the motorsport family and it's it's really true that you have people you can rely on. You have people, you know, there's some people we're closer to than others, but, well, Daryl's an example of that, I guess. But, <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of, for me, given me that real, when I was working full-time, you'd have a really stressful week or you'd be dealing with confrontation at work or whatever. You could go to the racetrack and it all just melts away because here you are, you know what you're doing, everyone's got a purpose, Everyone knows what they're doing. It works well. There's great communication. If there's not great communication, you get there at the end because you kind of go, hang on, we've got to change something. We've got to fix it. Particularly when you then are dealing with people you've never worked with before. And I think particularly when out on flag points, when I was flagging, you suddenly on a flag point and it might be with four people you've never met before and you have to work out everyone's strengths and weaknesses and communicating because you're in a dangerous situation. And as you say, that that kind of brings something together that you've achieved something. And it, it's no different in the timing room now that you have to work well as a team to get the right result out, basically. Yeah, so I've really found, and that's where now I, um, I stopped working full-time because I wanted to concentrate a bit more on going to motorsport events because I went, this is what's giving me satisfaction. This is what's giving me focus. This is what's making me feel stable in my life is doing more of this. So how can I do more of it to keep myself stable 
and keep myself happy. You've achieved a lot in terms of the events that you've officiated at. You're the chief timekeeper for the AMRS. We've seen you working in timing at supercars events at a lot of different circuits right over Australia. You do travel to a lot of different motorsport events, as we've discussed. Looking ahead, looking to the future, what else would you like to achieve within the motorsport arena? And what are your goals for the future? Well, I think the more I do things, Lockie, it's less about me, I guess, being chief and more about just creating environments where I can mentor and train. So I love having new people come into timing and showing them what it's all about and letting them get hands on and explaining it all to them. And you kind of, you know, move to that in the background monitoring that your team's all working like a well-oiled machine so as we talked about technology advancements, I'd like to be more involved, I guess, in the what's what's the future with this and kind of keep my ear to the ground, as we said. Like, So I've sort of put my hand up with Craig Wilson and said, let me test the new version of Natsoft. I go out and see Ian Robson at Dorian occasionally and look at what he's putting together and sort of talk through some of the technical sides. There's no kind of, I guess, most motorsport officials always have that bucket list tracks and so forth. I don't really have that as much. Uh, I guess I'd look for opportunities. It'd be great to do some events overseas, but it's not something I have to do. I'd look for the right opportunity and, of course, the right timing. <laughs> to Which kind is of, probably not right now, it has to be said. Well, exactly right. But we have so much great motorsport in Australia, I don't necessarily need to go overseas. I think for me, I, you know, it's, it's good now. I've got to gold-level timekeeper in Australia. Um, you know, it, as you say, it's trying to encourage more people to come through. Like, I feel like I've been blessed in my journey that, I was able to get hands-on and progress fairly quickly through. And so I'd like to give other people that opportunity to kind of shine and and if they really love it, you know, the more opportunities to go do it, the better. So we're almost done, but before we let you go, here on the Checkered Flag Chat Podcast, we always finish up with a segment called Checkered Flag Choices, which is basically <laughs> speed dating by a fancy name. The way it works is that I ask you five questions and you answer them. It really is very easy. So uh, question number one, what is your favourite holiday destination? Tasmania, I have to say. I love the place. I want to retire there. I'd move there in a heartbeat. Absolutely love it. Love the people, love the environment, love the nature. It's, um, yeah. Live in Tasmania and have a pet wombat. (laughs) <laughs> that like is is wild but lives in my backyard. I have heard that Tasmania is quite the place to go if you want to see wombats. Actually, I'm going to go on holidays there in January in between the two ARG oh, yeah. events because they're being held in very close proximity to each other. So I'm yes. going to treat that as a bit of a holiday. Question number two, five, uh, well, let's say between three and five people who you would like to invite to dinner. Oh, okay. That's an interesting one. Well, at the moment, it's probably just friends and family because I haven't seen them for so long. So do we treat this as like a COVID-19 question or just a general (laughs) question? Oh, that's a hard one, Lockie. I'd have to say, actually, it would probably be my family at the moment. Um, I know that sounds boring, but 
it would have to be like my brother and sister-in-law that live in Batemans Bay. I haven't, I haven't gone to see them and with COVID-19, I would have gone for a visit by now and I haven't seen them. Yeah, so I'd have to say family at the moment. What's your dream car? Uh, okay, so it has to be a Mercedes. We drive around a lot and I'll see a Mercedes and Mercedes, Mercedes, I don't know, that's a big thing. I'd probably say it like a Bogan Aussie. It should be Mercedes. Mercedes, is it? I know you can Mercedes, I think, is the correct pronunciation. So anyway, I love them. And, of course, when we're driving around and I say to Daryl, oh, yeah, that one, that style, because there's so many different ones. And I don't remember, as I said before, I don't remember models or whatever. I just know by the look and I'll go, that one, Daryl. And he goes, yeah, that one's like 300000 And I'm like, oh, okay, maybe that one's out of my price range. And then we'd see another one. I'm like, what about that one? Oh, maybe in 10 years' time you could pick that one up for maybe 60. So we we kind of do this game where we drive around and I'll pick out my dream car and he tells me I can't afford it. So that's a fun game. I We got budgies back in January and I called my blue budgie Mercedes. And Daryl said, yeah, that's probably the only one you're going to have. So, <laughs> so I have a, a budgie called Mercedes. And one day, Lockie. But at the moment, my Ford Mondeo is very lovely. I've just fitted, like, heads-up display and a reversing camera to it. So I'm adding little bits to it. It's getting sort of some love during COVID-19. Question number four. Best advice you've been given about motorsport? Oh, I think the best advice would have to be from Ian Leach. I've absolutely loved working with Ian Leach. He's anyone that knows him. He's a great operator and he knows a lot. He said to me one day, just breathe and then look at it. Because when, uh, you know, things go wrong in timing. So, you know, if a Dorian box suddenly shuts down or you start getting, you're not getting data from the track and whatever, you can quite easily panic and go, oh, my goodness, especially if it's a national event or going live to TV or so forth. And, yeah, the best advice he's probably given me is not just breathe, think about it, okay, don't panic. And that's something definitely I've got better at over the years because I watch him and he doesn't tend to panic. He just goes through the, okay, let's logically think about this. And, you know, that's something I have to think of is let's logically think about this. Do we need to tell race control we've got an issue or can we fix it? Are we still collecting the data? And and this is where I, I guess I've learnt then more of the technical side that with Dory and the truck side receiver box will still be collecting data even though you can't see it. So, you know, it, even though the public can't see it, you can't see it in the timing screen, it's collecting that data. So as soon as you fix whatever the issue is and you restart the system it'll all come flooding back and you haven't missed it so i guess the best advice i've been given is don't panic and just breathe and think about it and final question the racing driver who you respect the most you know what i think it's actually paul morris so the dude and the reason for that is well i I got to meet him last year and i have to say i really love the way he's coaching and mentoring when you see the younger generation coming through. So if you think like Anton and Brock Feeney and I can't think of any other names right now, but Brody uh, yeah, exactly. 
I really love his, and even you think back to when winning Bathurst 1000 with Chaz, and he came up there and said, I was just a seat warmer, you know, like that to me is kind of going, he knows his role and he, I, I find he's such a great mentor and um, coach to that younger generation coming up through the ranks. It's a good one. So there we go, Lucy. That concludes our podcast. And we do thank you very much for coming on because the timing aspect of motorsport is absolutely critical. We could not hold motorsport events without the timing resources that we have. And it's an aspect of motorsport that is often overlooked and not appreciated. So I think the insights that you've given us are going to be very, very interesting to a lot of people. So thank you very much. No worries, Lucky. Thanks to Lucy, we have some enlightening background into not only what happens in the timing room at racing events, but a wider perspective on the life of a motorsport official. If you want to find out more about officiating at motorsport events, you can contact your local motorsport venue, car club, or one of the motorsport sanctioning bodies, either the Australian Autosport Alliance or Motorsport Australia. I'm Lockie Mansell. Thanks for listening.